Welcome everyone. Good morning, good day, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are. Welcome and we wish you the best of your time with us. And uh, we um, are hoping that we can provide you the best conversation that you need for today. And we are very honored and happy and excited to have Eve's um, Engler as our guest today. Uh, as you, as we all know that it seems like this uh, environment currently is like manifesting people and our audience for so much hunger for truth and improved um, situations and understanding of what's going on so we could be wise in making decisions for ourselves. So we continue this conversation. So please, um, if you like this conversation, do you do us a favor and also share it to others. Roy, John, and I'm sure Eve has, we, we have all the links and uh, different platforms from BitChute, Rumble, and all the audio podcast and platforms there, okay? So we could all help each other and from a distance, you can do your part. So. Eves Angler, thank you very much for being here. And I'll just say a little bit about Eves, um, and then I'll ask him more to introduce or say more about himself, especially that this is his first time with us. And I'm sure I'm sure others know Eves already because we have a global audience. However, for those who don't know, so Eves will tell us more about it. And before we go into the really the meat of the topic, which would be one of his books, The Stand on Guard, For Whom? A People's History of the Canadian Military. And although that's the title that I chose, I'm sure we've can, uh, Eves can weave in many other topics so that we could broaden our understanding of what, what is happening. So Eves is dubbed as Canada's version of Noam Chomsky, and that's from Georgia Strait newspaper. And it's also one of the most important voices on Canadian left that's in Briar Patch in the mold of I.F. Stone, American investigative journalist that's in Globe and Mail. And part of that rare but growing group of social critics unafraid to confront Canada's self-satisfied myths. And that's in Quill Inquire, and he is ever insightful. So in Chomsky styled, I know iconoclast, and that's in Counterpunch, and a leftist gadfly, an Ottawa citizen. So Eves and his website is evesengler.com has published 12 books. And the latest is the stand on guard for whom a people's history of the Canadian military. So with the 12 books, we know that Eves can be with us for a week or a month, but we'll never end up discussing all the books. So, but for the meantime, get the best of what you can from this conversation. So stay focused. Don't let anything distract you. Okay. So Eves, let me just uh, ask, what is it that made you write all these books? And when did you kind of like it started to really say, okay, something is not 
very right or something is off or maybe it's time for me to start writing. And Yves is an activist. Yeah, I, I mean, I got, uh, I came to, uh, I grew up in Vancouver and I came to Montreal to go to uh, Concordia University in the um, early 2000s or in 2000. And um, uh, I got kind of, it was a pretty politically active campus and I got sort of uh, drawn into the activism. There was the big anti-corporate globalization move, uh, movement that was, you know, the big battle in Seattle and protests against the World Trade Organization in 1999. And the year I was at, first year at Concordia, I was mobilizing for the uh, free trade area of the Americans protest that was happening in Quebec City. So lots of organizing going on. And I got drawn into the student union at Concordia and I became an executive member of elected to the executive of the Concordia student union. And the, we, um, Benjamin Netanyahu, uh, who is now the prime minister at that point was the then prime minister of Israel, uh, was uh, brought to campus and that led to these big protests and, um, very chaotic situation the year I was in this, this student union. And, and so I got very, you know, politicized, uh, through all those experiences, very repressive moves by the administration of the university. Um, and then uh, I, I actually, I took a history of Haiti course in one of my early years at university. And then in 2004, uh, the US, Canada and France overthrew Haiti's elected government. And it, I, I was already fairly politically active at this point, but I, I still kind of had this idea of Canada as being this sort of force for good in the world. And uh, defender, you know, peacekeeping nation. And, and, and what I learned about Canada's role in Haiti in the coup that overthrew not only the elected president, but thousands of other elected officials was that Canada, in fact, was acting as quite clearly as an imperial bully in, in the most impoverished uh, country in the hemisphere and was really making life for people who already had very difficult lives even worse. And, and that went, went against what I had as my kind of conception of Canada and the world. And I, as part of the Haiti solidarity activism that I was involved in very heavily for a couple of years with the Canada Haiti Action Network, uh, which we set up, um, um, well, I co-published a small book about Canada's role in Haiti. And then I basically, after the worst of the killing ended in Haiti, uh, the Canadian-backed uh, killing, then I basically sort of said to myself, well, if Canada had done something so bad in Haiti, what has it done elsewhere? And I sort of, sort of like sort of deep investigation into Canadian foreign policy, which I published the Black Book of Canadian Foreign Policy in 2009. And as part of this, this research process, I, I understood very early on that there was a whole lot about Canada's ties to Zionism and Palestinian dispossession. And I Canada and Israel building apartheid, and I basically sort of opened my my uh, just open a kind of window into you know what Canadian foreign policy really was, and it's very different than what we're told. Much aligned with um, empire historically British, today American, and about advancing Canadian corporate interests. All of the rhetoric of help, helping, and benevolence, and all this stuff is, you know helping the women of Afghanistan or the children of Haiti or whatever is mostly just uh, a justification for, for, um, for the often very brutal policies. So that's really the kind of 
kind of my, my writing about Canadian foreign policy and, and the latest book, uh, Stand on Guard for Whom, kind of flows out of this, this political uh, uh, project or this political uh, trajectory of, of learning about, researching, writing about Canadian foreign policy and really trying to, to build a consciousness around, critical consciousness of Canadian foreign policy so Canadians stop trusting <laughs> Uh, uh, the decision makers that they're, you know, trying to do well, uh, uh, you know, be that right now in Ukraine or be that vis-a-vis China. In fact, if you look at the history of Canadian foreign policy, you'll find that, um, again, it mostly aligns with uh, empire, historically British, today American, and uh, it tries to advance uh, corporate interests. It's not about, you know, sort of benevolent humanitarian uh, affairs. Thank you for sharing that. And if one really listens carefully, although you're talking about your experience in as a Canadian, you know, it's if it's it's if it's member of the country's population, listen carefully. It can sound like also something that an American experiences, or perhaps Filipino experiences, when especially when. We don't know what the roles of our countries have been doing to other countries. So sometimes it's really crucial that we pay attention on what's going on with other countries because sometimes our citizens or people in other communities or nations, because we think they're isolated. In fact, when I keep listening to you know, your other podcasts and reading some of your articles, it just kind of always reminded me of that um you know it, it's i think it has become like a famous quote or they said it's like a poem by the prominent german pastor martin nimoller you know when he said the first they came for the socialist and i did not speak out because i was not a socialist and then they came for the unionist and i did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. So, and I, I, that's one of the reasons why as a, as podcasters, we haven't even met each other in person, but we came together to be part of this collective, or this collaborative path platform, because we feel that we have something to contribute. So I thank you for everything that you're you're doing and inspiring us. But um, I wonder how it feels for you, because many times I see you as if you're just working by yourself. So it's like, is it making? Uh, changes or are you do you think you're contributing to what you've been aiming to achieve I, well I, I you know I know I think it's it's very difficult um, when you when you look at the state of something like Canadian foreign policy and there's just so many different fronts in which the government is 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 acting in a way that's not um, aligning with their rhetoric. It's not upholding the international rules-based order. It's not lessening inequality in the world. It's not uh, overcoming ecological uh, problems. Um, 
it's it, it's very easy to get a little bit uh, down on you know the ability to you know the success and and sort of challenging uh, uh, power. I think that's as, as a general rule. Whenever you're challenging power, you you generally lose. That's kind of by definition. Um, but you can sometimes win, and you can uh, at least sometimes uh, lessen the most egregious uh, violations. Now, uh, in terms of uh, kind of personally, I mean, I do writing by definition is a pretty solitary kind of uh, endeavor. Um, uh, so that's obviously not really done in a collective way. Um, but over the years, I've been involved in different uh, activist groups uh, that have, uh, um, you know, organized in a more collective way. And, and now I, I uh, do stuff with the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, which is uh, effort to sort of uh, bring together a lot of the different um, uh, strands of critical Canadian foreign policy, the different little groups. There's little groups that are, you know, Palestine solidarity groups. There's Haiti solidarity groups. There's groups that focus on the Canadian mining companies causing all kinds of abuses around the world. Um, and the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute tries to sort of bring together a lot of that kind of critical uh, discussion and and uh, and. Give a bit, a bit, a bit of a bigger platform to to that kind of activism. Um, I have done recently. Uh, I have done uh, a form of activism that is a very, also a fairly solitary thing, which is I, I go to lots of uh, events by uh, by politicians and I uh, ask tough questions, or in some cases uh, disrupt their events and i've so i've you know disrupted canada's foreign minister the prime minister uh, uh christian freeland the fi now finance minister on different uh foreign policy issues and and it's done in a way that's um you know it's usually just me sometimes there's one or two other people with me um and just trying to get inside to these uh these events um that's a form of activism that i it has a utility in that you can break into the corporate media and then from the social media you post these videos to twitter and and facebook and some of them have been viewed by like millions of people um so you can sort of have some uh, media social media impact uh ultimately it i don't think it's it's um it's only a small little piece what you really need is you know mass movements uh when it comes to Canadian foreign policy for the most part, there aren't the mass movements, maybe with the exception of Palestine. There is actually quite an extensive uh, Palestine solidarity network across the country. And, you know, when whenever Israel does something really egregious to Palestinians, uh, like, you know, two years ago, uh, there were, you know, thousands in one demonstration here in Montreal. Uh-oh. <laughs> something is happening i don't ask him actually about you know um if, if the truckers that happened the movement of the truckers if that's something that uh really like inspired him or was it surprising to him and so i don't know anyway if is coming um very sorry about that i it, it just uh it cut out there um uh, but but it's, it's, so I'll, I'll continue where I think I was. I think like ultimately you want mass movements. If you're going to really affect change, you need mass movements. And, and with the exception of Palestine solidarity, there aren't really mass movements dealing with different elements of Canadian foreign policy right now on, you know, the, there have been mass mobilizations uh, against wars, uh, obviously in 2003, 
where, you know, here in Montreal, there was, uh, you know, 100,000 plus on the street on two different occasions to say, you know, to oppose Canada joining the, uh, the George Bush's, uh, you know, illegal invasion of Iraq. Um, but for the most part right now, the, the sort of anti-war movement or the anti-imperialist movement is not really um, particularly strong. Um, so, so a lot of the, a lot of the stuff I've been doing, you're, you're right in saying that it's, it, it's a pretty, um, uh, you know, solitary or, or individualistic, if you like. Um, but, but I think that there is, having said that, there, there has been a growth in critical consciousness of Canadian foreign policy. Mm -hmm. It's mostly at the margins, at the far left. Um, well, you know, 20 years ago, there, there were lots of people who considered themselves like socialist or, you know, anti-capitalist activists who, who uh, believed that Canadian foreign policy was sort of broadly, you know, benevolent. And now I think that there has been uh, over the past two decades of, 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 of activism and, and critical, whole bunch of critical books, obviously, I published a number of them, but also a number of other uh, people um, that that have sort of chipped away at the mythology of benevolent Canadian foreign policy, which I think is a good thing. Uh, obviously, you know, you need to have uh, mass movements and organized uh, organization to to you know force the the political change. Were you surprised about the truckers' movement when that happened? Uh, was I surprised? I mean, I was surprised in that in that I'm not uh, particularly uh, tied into the to the uh, the organizational uh, structures that 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 spurred that movement. Um, so I, you know, I kind of followed it in the media rather than being, uh, you know, sort of tied into uh, to the uh, to the groups that actually uh, got it going. Then what I also notice is where where uh where U.S. is involved in wars or in different countries of uh, extreme manipulation, Canada is also there. So do you ever see that Canada or Canadians will really be able to make an impact so that they just kind of stop being with the U.S.? Or who's leading who? And who, with this question, uh, oh, with this, your book, is like a call to action for me. It's like stand on guard. Who should stand on guard and what must that people, that group of people, individuals stand on guard for? And yes, and you ask the question for whom? Well, I mean, that goes to the essence of what the Canadian military is about, right? Is the Canadian military designed to protect Canadians from threats? That's how the Canadian military would portray what they do. Or is the Canadian military designed to expand the U.S. empire? And they say they're about protecting Canadians from threats, but in practice, they are principally organized around uh, advancing the U.S. Uh, empire. Historically, of course, that's the British. The Canadian military just you know, flows out of the British military, the forces that, you know, conquered these, these lands from, from uh, First Nations. Um, and basically since World War II, the Canadian military has been structured to advance uh, U.S. military dominance in the world. And the U.S., of course, is the, uh, you know, has 800 plus 
military bases around the world. It's engaged in <laughs> incredible levels of violence uh, uh, in recent decades and, and for many decades. Um, and and Canadian foreign Canadian military and foreign policy is basically um, designed to uh, to support that, and it, it comes down right to the level of like the Canadian military has been setting up a plan to set up seven bases, international bases. They have three set up already, uh, openly in Jamaica, in uh, in Kuwait, and in uh, in Germany, and they had plans for um, for one. In, in maybe in Singapore uh, and one on both sides of the African continent in the West and the East. Uh, and, and so, but they, but they are doing this explicitly in conjunction with the Pentagon. They, they, we got internal government documents to show that they they're coordinating with the Pentagon to where Canada should set up the bases. Uh, that's just one example. Canada, the Canadian military and the American military have hundreds. One estimate was something like 350 different uh, agreements or accords between the two countries' uh, militaries. The most well-known example, of course, is NORAD, uh, which is a you know unique uh, situation where U.S. Uh, uh, generals can uh, can dispatch Canadian forces based in Canada, um, and uh, and and NORAD is something that makes Canada basically complicit or involved in almost any war the U.S. Uh, fights anywhere in the world, even when Canada's not officially involved in it, because it, it provides uh, radar and you know intelligence. And the Canadian, there are Canadians who are operating uh, those um, those uh, those devices. So um, the yeah, the, I mean, so we get to the question of you know who who is the military supposed to be about uh, protecting? If you look at the rhetoric of Canadian officials around the military. And the reality, you'll find there's a very big gap. They, the rhetoric is that we're, it's about, you know, protecting Canadians. The reality is it's about advancing uh, the U.S. Uh, empire. And so what, what, um, what, you know, genuine journalists, podcasters, critics, whatever should be doing is, is uh, highlighting uh, the, the discrepancy between what they're saying and what is actually uh, happening. Unfortunately, most of the media are act as stenographers for uh, for the military and for NATO and for you know, power in general, and they just uh, repeat what the what the politicians and the arms companies and the military uh, say as if it's uh, a fact rather than you know digging into it. Um, but yeah, so the military really should be. Uh, uh, we should be, you know, pointing out the discrepancy between what they say and what they uh, what they actually do. Thank you so much. Thank you for being with us. Okay, and I'll pass it on to Roy. And thank you for everything that you're doing. Thanks, Chris. Hi, Eves. So I remember, like years ago, there was loads of people going to Canada. Everybody thought that uh, Trudeau was fantastic. I'm assuming you kind of realized that at an early stage that uh, he was part of, uh, let's call it the cabal. Yeah, I, I sorry, I my internet's not not working so well. I, I don't know exactly what's going on, but I missed a bit of the start of that. But yeah, I mean, I, Justin Trudeau. I, I published a book on uh, Justin Trudeau uh, called the uh, uh, Justin Trudeau's uh, Foreign Policy: uh, The House of Mirrors. Um, 
And initially it was going to be called, uh, the working title was The Ugly Canadian, uh, Justin Trudeau's Foreign Policy, uh, uh, which the publisher didn't, didn't want didn't to use as a title. But yeah, I mean, Justin Trudeau to me is somebody who is, uh, you know, he, he is very good with his rhetorical flourishes. He cares about um, the environment. He cares about women's rights. He wants to f- combat inequality. He believes in ending world hunger. Uh, and in fact, he just basically follows what the big corporations, what the military, what the U.S. empire uh, wants. I mean, that's the, <laughs> to, you know, it's obviously more complicated than that, but that's the essence of it. And like, because uh, Ch- Charles Schwab's uh, came out and basically, you know, he's his, admitted that he, he owns half the the cabinet in 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 Canada, but I mean, he also mentioned about having Putin and everything trained under him. So, like, one, everything, like, to even for him to come out and say that in public, should have everybody up in arms to know that, like, here you've got some organization that's saying that they've they've got they've got kind of control technically over the Canadian cabinet. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I, I'm not that. That's not. I mean, I think the, the 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 corporations and the media power structure have don't have just half of Canada's cabinet. They have the whole cabinet. I, I think that the 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 that structure is is a bit more broad than um, than that framing, uh, and uh, and you can find like you know really. I mean, concrete examples, right? The the liberals announced they they got elected. When Trudeau got elected. Before he got elected, he announced they were going to have a an ombudsperson with power to restrain the worst of the abuses of Canadian mining companies abroad. That was a promise made before. Then it was they put out a proposal to 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 create this ombudsperson, which is something they've been big campaigning on for two decades. They came up with a proposal to create this ombudsperson because Canadian mining companies global leaders, right, all around the world. And there's incredible numbers of injustices caused by Canadian mining companies from the Philippines to the Congo, to uh, Chile, to, uh, um, you know, to Guatemala. And, and, um, and so they had a proposal for this, this, uh, this ombudsperson that would have some teeth to end public support for the companies found to be engaged in the worst abuses. The proposal was put forward. And then the Mining Association of Canada uh, the individual mining companies launched a remarkable lobbying campaign. And what came out of it was an ombudsperson with basically no power. So they, they did a 180 return on their, on their uh, proposal, on their promise, and then their actual proposal because the corporations just began hard uh, lobbying campaign. And quite frankly, the, the social uh, justice organizations are just not strong enough to to you know do something to counter that and uh and they buckled so this is just you know one example but it it, it goes through recently with the um the pharmaceutical uh question uh the the they've you know canada pays the second highest uh or third highest of uh pharmaceutical prices right for these drugs i think it's only the u.s and in, in uh, i think it's uh switzerland that they pay higher average prices because most countries they they uh, they bulk buy and they basically you know 
create some power to negotiate the prices down from the from the you know the big pharma uh, uh, companies. The, the liberals promised they set up this whole like commission with these academics that are that are on it to to, to bring forward a proper proposal to to rectify this and to lessen the profit the profiteering of the pharmaceutical companies. And then just uh, there was just a, mentioned it on CBC uh, Newsworld last night, but a couple of weeks ago it, it broke. They basically they under pressure from the pharmaceutical companies they buckled and then the the committee that they set up of these academics to try to have this proposal they all started resigning because the interference of the health minister on behalf of the the pharmaceutical companies so this just this is just you know replicated over and, and over and over again in in how the government um operates its its uh, its policy uh, so I think it, you know, how it functions is, is a, you know, yes, they are, they are bought and paid for. That's no doubt. But how that process plays out, I think, is a bit more uh, elaborate than, than sort of one uh, figurehead, you know, having half of uh, half of Canada's cabinet. Okay. Um, I heard you speaking as well in a different interview about uh, Venezuela and I think it's Lima. Is it Lima was the thing that they organized, but basically with the leader of Venezuela. So you might kind of touch on that because I think a lot of people might be familiar with what happened there. Well, we just saw Juan Guaido, who uh, he just uh, just yesterday actually he was disrupted at this event in uh, Washington D.C. He has uh, he has uh, you know fled Venezuela. Now he's basically given up the the multi-year, four-year-long uh, charade of claiming to be the president of, of Venezuela, and he you know he appointed himself president of Venezuela in a park in Caracas. Uh, uh, and the only reason that he was able to appoint himself that was because. The U.S., Canada, and some other countries uh, basically supported and may even have actually sort of instigated this whole uh, claim to the to the presidency, and and Canada that goes back to 2017 where Canada set up the, the so-called Lima Group, which you're referring to, of uh, of countries opposed to the uh, to the Venezuelan uh, government, to the Nicolas Maduro government, and. You know, there's lots of very legitimate criticisms of the of the Maduro government, but at the end of the day, it was the legitimate government. It is the legitimate government of, of Venezuela. It was elected, um, and um, and uh, basically, Canada had multi-year campaign to just claim a opposition, a mark, quite frankly, a marginal opposition figure was a legitimate president of Venezuela, and and they brought in all kinds of sanctions and they they've been funding opposition groups they they were involved in the whole negotiation process with with opposition political parties in Venezuela to to claim that Juan Guaido was the legitimate president and now 4 years later uh Guaido has had to um you know flee the country and he's now you know even the Canadian government and US government have given up on the on the on the charade but they still you know, they still have billions and billions of dollars of assets of the Venezuelan government, the U.S. and, and other countries, Britain, uh, have have uh, sequestered their their funds and have given it over to these opposition figures, uh, um, you know, with just no, you know, no basis in international law. Um, and uh, and it's just one example of this, you know, Canadian uh, foreign policy, which is about aligning with Washington and about advancing uh, corporate interests. You know, Canadian mining sector, for instance, um, and and it's and it's uh, you know it's just I mean, to put it simply, it's imperialism. It's imperialism. It's saying we get to determine 
who the legitimate politicians are of that country. And and if you if you sit and look at if you contrast you know Canada's claims around Venezuela or Maduro versus their policy in Haiti. So on one hand, we're saying, oh, uh, Maduro wasn't uh, legitimate because there's some question marks around the election. Well, in Haiti, the the question marks around election were like a, you know a thousand times more serious, and yet we were backing, uh, we were propping up Jovenel Moise and the PSTK political movement that has you know like no basically no electoral legitimacy no very little popular support far less popular support than than Maduro have in Venezuela um and and far more brutal and and yet you know we 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 uh we we uh we support it so when you when you look at these these decisions that Canadian politicians uh make uh, from a macro level, and on one hand, we're you know we're all about supposed democracy in Venezuela, while we're sending huge amounts of weapons to the Saudi, uh, you know, the highly <laughs> patriarchal and and uh, and uh, authoritarian Saudi monarchy as they're you know killing large numbers in Yemen. Uh, but we we want to talk about women's rights and you know feminist foreign policy, uh, or we want to talk about you know. Uh, some problems with uh, democratic functioning in Venezuela. The the hypocrisy and the double standards just is just off uh, off the charts, um, and it gets back to you know what is actually motivating these policies. It's not the you know women's rights. It's not uh, f- feeding the world's poor. It's about corporate power. It's about alignment with uh, 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 U.S. empire. And. Like I heard with um, with Venezuela that Yemen had the constitu- constitution introduced that they had little documentations that every you know all, all the citizens had it. Is it a case of that they know what's going on, or is it like the way the media is all over the world? They've been brainwashed and they're going to this conflict between people on the street. Oh, Venezuelans clearly have a high level of consciousness that the U.S., Canada, and other countries have been trying to sabotage uh, their government. Venezuela, the country is divided. I mean, there there are you know there are um, important numbers of people and political forces that don't like uh, Maduro. Some of them have, I think, legitimate criticisms, and some of them are just you know want to return to the good old days where the you know the 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 ten percent of of wealthy and light-skinned Venezuelans sort of controlled everything. Um, and uh, uh, so, so you know, there are real dif- differences. But yes, there is there are people, you, as you pointed out, there are, you know, the, the Constitution and people has level of, of consciousness is much, much greater. They understand that there there is a plot by the international powers to to sabotage their government. And they and they've shown very clearly they they you know they rejected it they they've rejected it by their mobilizations doesn't doesn't mean that they just blindly believe their government is great but they they prefer they have a certain amount of 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 um, of pride of 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 nationalistic pride that says you know we're better off with the the government that we choose than the you know foreigners getting to decide uh, who to choose and 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 one of the things that that makes the the uh, you know the Venezuelan opposition. One of the things that Juan Guaido and, and the other forces aligned with him, uh, they've they they call for sanctions, right? Well, over even many many people who don't like the Venezuelan government, Venezuelans don't like the Venezuelan government, don't want 
foreign sanctions on their country. They understand that it's destroying their economy and it making their life more difficult and, and worse. And that's part of central reason why so many Venezuelans have, have left the country in, in recent years, though it looks like that's sort of people are returning and things are stabilizing economically. Um, but, but, um, but so, so, you know, the, the, the forces that we're aligned with uh, in Venezuela are, are very marginal politically. The Guaido and the Voluntad Popular political party, they never, I think it's like 8% of the vote. They've never won more than 8% of the vote. They're these sort of hard line, almost sort of fascistic type of uh, uh, political forces within Venezuela. They ne they've never even been majority within the opposition. They, they're, they're, they're marginal within, they're like the fourth biggest political party within the opposition. Um, and, but yeah, so, but, but we're all, we're doing all this for democracy's sake, ostensibly, right? So um, yeah. It's uh, it's it's a it's a it's a pretty remarkable and, and and I'd say with the Venezuela stuff now we're at the point where it's like it's pr it's proven failure right the, the 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 liberal government for a couple years was really aggressive uh, in openly you know we're trying to overthrow this government okay now they've they've failed the media in Canada has just, while they covered it pretty extensively, while there was sort of this boosterism, oh, we're in this fight for democracy, we're going to, this is opposition, great opposition figure, we're backing, and it's fight for democracy. They, they talked about it quite a bit in, you know, 2019, for the first six months of 2019 specifically. Um, now it's just complete silence, right? So the, the fact that it's been a total failure, the fact that the rest of the hemisphere, which had aligned with Canada, through the Lima Group, when there were sort of right-wing governments that had had um, become in office in many Latin American countries, uh, now the Lima Group has completely collapsed. Just complete silence. So there's no media that even will even talk about the fact that we we had this big campaign to overthrow the government. It's been a failure. The rest of the countries in the hemisphere don't agree with us anymore. Um, they reject this policy. That that just gets you know you know wiped out from history. And so. Um, any under sort of deeper understanding of what Canadian foreign policy is, um, is, uh, you know, it has to be left up to, uh, you know, dissident, uh, dissident writers and dissident activists and dissident podcasters to, um, to talk about. Okay. And going across the pond then to the Ukrainian conflict, what's Canada's kind of involvement with that? Well, first of all, I, I think what Russia's, The powers that be don't like that question. <laughs> CRTC is not happy. <laughs> Your camera is flashing all the time too, John. I know, I know. I have that. a problem yeah. with my camera, so yeah. apologies for but that. It's, I don't know. It's, yeah. it's, it's kind of obvious that it's a proxy war, right? So, you know, then before you know it, it's really you think it is another country, but it is, uh, you know, just a whole expansion of the British Empire. And it really this, is. We, we yeah. really are. We, we haven't left British rule. <laughs> yeah. And it's just interesting, John, because before the 2020, everyone seemed to like, whoa, Canada is the best place to be in. You know, you interview people. They're really, they, they're relocated from United States. Oh, my goodness. They're so happy. And until, boom, 2020 happened. And well, Canada has, Canada has been in decline since, uh, I can say, easily since 
19. I saw it in 2000. Okay. But it was in decline from the 1990s. Mm -hmm. When we had, when we had about, sorry, go ahead, Eves. I was just uh, trying to explain the decline of Canada. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I'm really sorry about this internet. I actually woke up this morning and the internet was off on my laptop and I, and I, I just sort of assumed it, I, I turned it off and got turned it back on. I thought it was all sort of back functioning and, and but clearly it's not, it's not functioning very well. Um, so I, so I apologize for that, but, but uh, yeah, with regards to Ukraine, I mean, the first thing that always say, I, I think that Russia's invasion is both, you know, clearly a violation of international law and is, and is, you know, brutal, uh, not as brutal as what the U S did in Iraq, but nonetheless clearly brutal. Um, now Canada's role, uh, and 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 in that sense, you know, Russia bears you know principal uh, responsibility. But this is clearly a provoked war, and it's also Canada has has <laughs> fueled it um, while opposing negotiations. And now, so the ways in which it's provoked are the Canadian government has been pushing NATO expansion since the early '90s aggressively. Jean Chrétien, when he came to office in '93. He completely contravened the promises made at the end of the, uh, the the Soviet Union to not move NATO eastward. Canada became the most aggressive proponent of pushing it eastward, including and in, even in early on pushing it into Ukraine. Canada backed the disastrous Bush proposal in 2008. Uh, Canada was really the only other main country backing uh, to push to have Ukraine join NATO in 2008. Stephen Harper was quite open and aggressive about that. No, all, all along, knowing full well this was angering Russia and it was eventually going to lead to uh, you know, greater and greater tension. Um, Canada has been a big player in Ukraine and pushing Ukrainian nationalism, anti-Russian Ukrainian nationalism for decades, even before the, the end of uh, the Cold War. Um, but, but not to get into that whole history, but the most concrete element in, in, in between 2010 and 2014, where you had the elected president Viktor Yanukovych, which was you know viewed as more you know elected by those in the south and the east of Ukraine that were you know usually Russian speaking, and uh, he brought in legislation around Ukraine not joining NATO and maintaining neutrality. Canada worked to destabilize uh, Yanukovych's government right away, and then and, you know all kinds of measures. I've written about this. Uh, um, but then in, in the when the Maidan protests take place in late 2013 and early 2014, Canada plays quite an aggressive role in backing the movement, trying to oust uh, the elected president. And I should say that Canada had uh, elect- electoral observers in 2010 during the election for Yanukovych, and they gave the election, even though they were against Yanukovych, very clearly Canada was against Yanukovych at that time, they, the Canadian electoral observers said this was, you know, a legitimate election, you know, so, so, so. They don't. They didn't deny the the, the electoral legitimacy of, of of Yanukovych, but yet they they propelled and they stoked this movement to oust uh, um, uh, him. And and the most egregious example of that during the Maidan protests was the the Canadian embassy in Kiev, which is close to the Maidan Square. It was used as a as a as a base for opposition protesters for more than a week including the C-14, a far-right uh, uh, organization. Um, and, and that's a you know, clear violation of, of international law in terms of interference in the, in the internal affairs of, a, of another country's politics to, to give up your, your embassy to opposition, uh, you know, people calling for the overthrow of the government. Um, 
and and um and then uh, you know afterwards immediately harper goes to the prime minister at the time goes to ukraine twice in like a six-week period the right after the maidan protest really celebrates it and announces financial support um and 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 then the the minsk uh, peace accord are you know are the miss one minsk two or or signed uh, the latter one in early 2015, and then Canada begins the uh, Operation Unifier, which is trains more than 30,000 Ukrainian forces that are fighting a war basically against uh, you know civil war against uh, uh, separatist forces in the east of, of of the Ukraine, and so we basically through Operation Unifier we try to we try to sabotage the Minsk Peace Accord. That was the that was the effect of it, and it was, you know almost certainly the intent as well. And and from that point, which is uh, April of 2015, we're basically in a in a in a low level proxy war with Russia because Russia backs the the other side, uh, uh, not as much as we hear in our media, but nonetheless was backing the other side in the in the civil war in in uh, in, uh, in Ukraine, and um, and then of course on February 24th, 2022, Russia you know massively expands this low level. Uh, uh, war that had been taking place for you know, seven years, um, eight years. And, um, and so, and so, you know, that's part of the whole like provoking context uh, and there's other facets in supporting American ripping up of nuclear arms control measures and stuff like that. Uh, but that's, you know, part of the, the background sort of context. And now for the past 14 months, we have a Canadian government that just pumps in ever more amounts of weapons. We're at According to Le Devoir on the one-year anniversary, 2.26 billion of Canadian weapons have been given in the first year to Ukraine. We have just a couple of days ago, uh, two more Canadians were killed near fighting near Bakhmut. Uh, so they were promoting former Canadian soldiers to go fight in Ukraine. There have been a number of reports about Canadian special forces on the ground in Ukraine. Uh, they're very important. Why Ukrainian militaries had the successes had is in large part not just the weaponry it's gotten, but it's the intelligence support. And through the radar sat, Canada has been providing all kinds of uh, uh, um, important uh, um, uh, intelligence support to the Ukrainian uh, forces. And uh, and then, but 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 you know, sort of most egregiously, because you could you could you, you know you could frame this as sort of well, it's been an act of aggression. I, I don't agree with this exact framing, but you can frame it. Oh well, the Russians have you know active aggression, and we just ha have to defend. Ukraine from the you know foreign uh, onslaught, and so we have to give them weapons. You can you, you know there's a certain framing there that I you know agree with parts of, but 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 at the same time you can push for negotiations, you can push for a truce, you can push for some sort of way to end the horrors. But the Canadian government has done the exact opposite. <laughs> they 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 uh, you know uh, say that this is not the time to talk about peace. Not even we don't even talk about peace when China puts out a proposal. Uh, the they denounced the Chinese proposal. They instead, Melanie Jolie, foreign minister, uh, you know, a month ago, saying, "Oh, we would talk about regime change in in Moscow." So, so we we're fueling the war while simultaneously opposing any any bid to you know have some sort of truce and negotiated solution to to end the disaster that it is for Ukrainians primarily and primarily Ukrainians in the east of the country. And also, of course, for Russians, the you know Russian conscripts and other young Russians that are being killed as well, and 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 for the world, quite you know, I mean, all kinds of impacts it's having on food prices and uh, for elsewhere, and 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 why are we doing it? And we're doing it, I think, for two basic reasons. One is it's the U.S. empire sees this as a way to weaken um, uh, 
uh, a, a competitor in uh, Russia. And we're doing it because there's this, you know, well-organized um, uh, Ukrainian uh, a lobby that is basically, when they call it Ukrainian, but it really what it is is sort of a Ukrainian, uh, 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 Western Ukrainian, I mean that geographically in, in terms of Ukraine, uh, a nationalist force that that is structured around, uh, its nationalism is structured around being anti, anti-Russian, and it's been that way for, you know, decades and decades and it has it has significant uh, influence um and so you know we're we're they're happy to you know fight to the last ukrainian right we can rush it to, to to uh to the last ukrainian we'll keep pumping in more and more weapons and more and more assistance to um so long as there's ukrainians that are you know willing to be uh to be killed to uh to weaken uh russia so it's 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 you know it's horrible it's it's Terrible to see, um, but um, you know what we need to do is press the Canadian government to, to stop uh, uh, opposing uh, talking talking about peace and you know, negotiations. Even if they're not going to happen right away, you have to start by talking about peace and talking about negotiations and supporting initiatives from like the Brazilian government or the Turkish government, the Chinese government. Uh, Israelis were involved in in early negotiations that the U.S. Uh, and Britain sabotaged. Um, uh, you know, you gotta you gotta start by at least putting negotiations and peace on the table, um, but we don't we don't want to do that. No, excellent. And just just finally, before I pass you over to John, I mean, I never thought we'd have a conversation where every country thinks they've got the biggest idiot running their country. I mean, I see it in Ireland, I see it in Poland, in the UK, everywhere. Is there any leader? that you think is actually legitimate or do you think the whole lot is controlled from a higher powers that are controlling the whole lot of them? I, I think that, I think that global uh, capitalism is very powerful. And I think that global imperialism is very powerful. So I don't, I don't think there's any country, even, even you know, a country like China, that's, you know, increasingly becoming a, a, uh, a powerful, uh, uh, you know, competitor to the U S in some ways uh, it's it's still you know NATO and U.S. dominance of of the whole from the UN to uh, to the IMF to you know so many different multilateral institutions you know U.S. power in so many different ways media power um, it, it it influences you know China's uh, uh, policies and it it sort of has to succumb to a certain amount of of that um, but I think as a general level. We're at a we're at a point where global capitalism is is largely uh, unchallenged. Uh, the level of power that corporations have over every sphere, from you know buying politicians to to uh, the media to the think tanks to uh you know into the schools and like you know not just the universities and the high schools but even into like curriculum that gets into the elementary schools and you know corporate power is 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 so massive um that that you know the best politicians are going to be you know even they're they're you know they're influenced by that and they're constrained by that um are there politicians? I mean, I think Lula in uh, in Brazil. What we see some of the developments taking place uh, uh, there are positive. I think some of the geopolitical stuff he's been proposing is 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 
is uh, is positive. Some of the efforts to counter the destruction of the Amazon are positive and uh, improve the prospect of landless uh, uh, Brazilians. Uh, you see some developments with uh, the, the government in, 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 in Colombia that I think is really trying to uh, change. I think that the most exciting uh, political developments are taking place in Latin America um, with the you know, new governments in, in Colombia and in Brazil and in uh, uh, Chile, maybe to a lesser extent in, in Honduras. Um, uh, but, but I think that there are, there, I'm not seeing any, I'm not seeing any, uh, uh, political, uh, movement like mass or government that is, that is really, um, uh, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing a, 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 a short to medium term break away from capitalism. And I think ultimately, uh, capitalism is is antithetical to to democracy. I think basically it's based upon the idea if you have uh, you know a piece of paper in your pocket that says you are the you know uh, owner of that company, you have the control over huge amounts of economic uh, decisions. That's antithetical to the idea of one person one vote. You need to have one person one vote not only in the political arena but also in the in the economic arena where where so much of life is decisions of life are being made and and so uh is there is there really a sort of short to medium term challenge to to the capitalist system no i don't think there is and i don't think there's any there are some governments in latin america that maybe sort of rhetorically say they are challenging uh uh but not not really in in uh, in practice um so I think that that's that that has to come from us. That has to come from the people. That has to come from social movements. That has to come from dissident intellectuals and journalists and podcasters and you know other other uh, domains of building a a, um, a a vision for an alternative to uh, uh, to uh, to capitalism. No, excellent. Thank you very much, Ezra. Pass it to my uh, Canadian friend John with a bit of Greek in him. <laughs> Thanks, Roy. Hey, Eves. Um, so a lot of my questions are going to be based off of one Canadian speaking to another Canadian. Um, I know I understand the, uh, how Canadian mining companies have uh, huge influence around the world because my heritage is Greek. And I do know that Canadian mining companies own a lot of gold mines in Greece, and they're not letting up on their on their um, hold on uh, how Greek companies can go about mining and distributing Greek gold. So I understand that. Um, I just found it a little odd for that. I, I, I found it odd that Canadian mining companies were one of the largest uh, corporations in, in the world. I, I found that hard to believe because we have so much natural resources here in Canada when it comes to like copper, diamonds, um, uranium, you name it, we have it. Why are we going outside of our own borders and not building mines, mines and smelting companies here to support our own, our own people? Well, well, I think that that Canada is the hub, like more than half of the world's mining companies are, are based in Canada, mostly in Toronto, secondarily Vancouver, uh, listed on the, the Toronto Stock Exchange. And 
uh, and you know, Canada has less than 0.05% of the world's population or sorry, 0.5% of the world's population. So it's like, uh, you know, a hundred times Canada's uh, proportion of the world's population in terms of its uh, my mining Canadian companies are they're they're you know they are the dominant player almost everywhere Canadian companies are not necessarily generally the biggest mining companies Canada dominates in the what's called the junior sector so often the companies that go in and explore uh, begin the process and often sell themselves uh, sell the project to a, to a bigger company. Uh, there are some very big Canadian mining companies as well, but but the the it's usually the sort of smaller ones with that Canada dominates, and that that has a long history to it. That has a history to it to part of what you're saying, which was that Canada has been a mining, uh, you know, there's been lots of mining taking place here, and that history is partly tied to obviously the vast size of the lands and also the dispossession of, 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 of First Nations. There's also some particulars around the legislation because Canada has very permissive legislation around uh, not uh, uh, reporting requirements, historically at least, on the on the stock exchange in terms of, so, so you can, you don't have to report, you know, environmental or human rights violations. Uh, part of it has to do with poor legislation around uh, suing uh, companies for what they do abroad in 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 domestic courts. The U.S. has legislation that says if a U.S. company does something really egregious abroad, you can sue them in the U.S. court. Canada hasn't had that. Now that's sort of sort of, sort of breaking down legally, and there's been a couple of cases that have broken that down recently. Um, there's also just the the expertise that's been built up in Canada because of the big mining industry domestically, you know, over the past century and a half, um, that the you know, the engineering and other sort of uh, expertise um, uh, that's you know concentrated. But yeah, so it's been basically a hub of of so. The, but the but the simple explanation is profits. The the companies aren't their their objective is not you know building up Canada's economy versus building up that country's economy. Their their objective is extraction specific extraction with the objective of making money making profits and and so wherever they can make those profits they'll they'll uh, they'll do it and but 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 from a from um from a uh, you know an average canadian or a canadian citizen or or, or politically minded uh canadian What's really important about this is, is it goes beyond just it's, you know, sort of in the realm of the private capital, um, which, I, you know, in of itself, we should restrain. But 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 it's it's that the government is actively supporting this from step one to step, you know, 100. Right. You have trade commissioners. Right. Where what does a tr Canadian trade commissioner do in Ecuador? Most of what a Canadian trade commissioner does in Ecuador is it helps Canadian mining executives get to know, you know, politicians and if basically facilitates their operations in the country uh, and not just the trade commissioner but often the ambassador that's much what the ambassador does and, and and or other diplomatic officials then if you look at all the funding through uh um export development canada assistance uh to the to the companies uh, in some case in some instances to the uh fipa accords the foreign investment protection agreements that canada signs these investor accords to allow Canadian mining companies to sue, uh, you know, the government of Burkina Faso in international tribunals. So it signs these accords basically designed to, to better uh, strengthen the hand of Canadian mining companies operating, uh, you know, in different countries around the world. Um, 
in, in the most egregious examples, there's even uh, in the 1970s, the game military had a plan to invade Jamaica uh, if uh, if Alcan's uh, bauxite interests were nationalized by the Jamaican government. They literally like they and they did exercises in Jamaica based upon in the if 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 a if a, a socialistic government uh, uh took control of the resources so so the extent to which the whole canadian foreign policy apparatus um advances the interests of canadian mining companies is, is quite uh quite remarkable and uh, even when they promise as i mentioned earlier even when they promise to um to restrict public support for the most egregious abusers, and that's what the, basically the ombudsperson was designed to do—not to not not to throw the companies in jail or officials in jail, but just to end public support when a company is found to be, you know, killed people somewhere or, or destroyed a, a water stream because it's dumping its pollutants into it. Um, that uh, even when they promised that, like the Liberal government did, they. They uh, they buckle under the face of uh, mining industry uh, uh, pressure and uh, and have come up with this you know farcical uh, uh, ombudsperson that has no power to do uh, uh, to do anything. So it almost sounds like the the un uh, the unions and the uh, corporations have their claws into Parliament here in Canada. Well, certainly the uh, the corporations have their claws into Parliament in a in a you know a very uh, uh, extreme way uh, on the on the mining on the mining sector. There's just absolutely no doubt about it. the the uh, The biggest um, mining convention in the world happens in Toronto, and usually I think it's early to mid March. The Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada uh, a convention it just happened uh, I guess six weeks ago. And it'd be just like tens and tens of thousands of people from all around the world uh, that come to that. There's there was like three or four Canadian ministers that that were there. They now made a whole bunch of announcements. Uh, uh, Canadian ambassadors, like the Canadian ambassador to Peru, uh, comes back to Toronto to to participate in that and participates in this Peru Day where where they sort of bring uh, you know you're trying to basically get Canadian companies to you know, operate in Peru and it's tied into, you know, some elements of the Peruvian government as well. But like, it's just, there'd be, there would have been hundreds of Canadian uh, Global Affairs Canada, uh, uh, other ministries, officials that would participate in this, this, you know, Mecca of, of global, uh, global mining. So, um, you know, clause into parliament is, 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 uh, it's much deeper than that. It's, you know, clause into every different level of the, uh, of the Canadian state uh, apparatus. Did Stephen Harper have anything to do with that? Because between the, between the years of 2006 and 2015, when he was prime minister of Canada, the Canadian economy was probably the most powerful I've ever seen in my lifetime. And the the recognition that Canadians had around the globe was probably one of the best I've seen. And also the Canadian military was also one of the most respected militaries in the world. So within the within those years, did Stephen Harper have any effect on that? Yeah, well, I mean, Stephen Harper was sort of um, widely was criticized by many um 
the many sort of mining justice and sort of NGO and whatever kind of groups um, for having become so pro mining. I wrote a book uh, called uh, The Ugly Canadian, uh, Stephen Harper's Foreign Policy about uh, Harper's uh, foreign policy, which I, of course, is was not not supportive of so so harper deepened the ties between like the ngos uh, and mining companies they put up all this money for instance um for mining companies to work with ngos in peru uh there was one in um in burkina faso i forget what the third one generated a fair bit of controversy because they basically got the uh, ngos to do um Canadian government finance projects that were basically um, the Canadian mining companies uh, really drove in the in the communities where they're operating and were designed to just to build support in local communities <clears throat> to mining companies that were often widely criticized in those local communities and using Canadian aid money to you know, uh, facilitate the operations of Canadian uh, uh, companies. Um, that was that was an, one instance that got a lot of criticism, but but um, yeah. So Stephen Harper uh, and he did kind of a similar game with the ombudsperson that that the Trudeau government later did, where they, after under pressure, they announced that they were going to set up this this position that would check the worst abuses in mining companies, and then it you know had it had no uh, no teeth, um, and it was really just a PR PR exercise. So so yeah, Harper did that, but what what was and a lot of people blamed Harper for it. But what we're seeing is that it just continues with Trudeau, which speaks to the fact that a lot of these decisions are not just like that individual in, you know, as prime minister that it's, it's much more structural. Uh, it has to do with just the fact that these mining companies are really powerful. I mean, they, you know, they have huge numbers of head offices in Toronto are these mining companies that are making money all around the world and they don't want to stop making that money right so so whatever politician even if you had a, a jagmeet singh who comes in and says i'm gonna you know lessen corporate power uh well the corporations have something to say about that <laughs> they 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 don't uh, you know and so unless you have the political movements that that are you know really demanding the change and you know forcing pressing a government to fulfill the promises they may make around you know, weakening corporate power. Unless you have that, um, the politicians, you know, it, it just continues as, you know, business as usual. Um, so, yeah, I think Trudeau or Harper was part of that. But what, what's remarkable is how little um, things have changed uh, in the basic outlines of, of mining policy specifically under, uh, under Justin Trudeau. Well, it doesn't surprise me one bit. I mean, Justin Trudeau's. I'm not very happy with Justin Trudeau at all, and I'm sure most Canadians are not happy with him as well. Um, the cost of living in Toronto and across of Canada, from what I've heard, has gone up exponentially from the time that he's taken power. And he keeps printing money over and over year after year like it's he's growing a money tree out of his backyard. Do you think Pierre Polyvier will be at least some form of breaks on this ridiculous amount of spending that he's doing? Uh, 
Well, it's possible he might reduce spending. I, 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 I would prefer, I prefer Trudeau to Polyevre. Uh, I, I prefer Jagmeet Singh to Trudeau. Uh, and I don't like, I don't like, uh, I don't like any of them. Um, but, uh, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that the, when we talk about the cost of living, um, I, I think the, the the most important factor in not everywhere in the country, but in at least half of the country, the most important factor is the cost of housing and how that is just completely ballooned and it's become just unaffordable for, for so many people. What, what to me, the principal explanation or the principal way to counter that is by, is because we stopped building public housing. We stopped funding co-ops. That was all cut, right? Uh, there was a whole was cut by Paul Martin's government when he was finance minister in the, in the early 90s. Um, and, uh, and, and, and what we need is to build large amounts of public housing and offer financing for co-op housing. Uh, also, uh, we need, I think, some better regulation, better rules around uh, rental. Um, now, I have proposed, and I've proposed this in, in a number of forums, uh, written about it in different ways, uh, a, a melding of environmental concerns and the housing crisis. So the public owns a lot of land, right? In, in the central city, the places where housing has gotten completely out of control, primarily Toronto, Vancouver, worst, and also Now, either the CRTC doesn't like me, or doesn't like that, or they don't like that answer. One of the two happened. That's what I heard also, you know, John, that the real estate in Canada is really it's out ridiculous. of control now. It's yeah. ridiculous. A small little bungalow will cost you a million dollars here in Toronto. A tiny little bungalow. Apologies. Yeah, no, the, the cost of housing is just completely in Vancouver is even more, even more crazy. That's where I, where I grew up. Um, so the, the, the cost of housing is just, and it's not just the, you know, cost of buying now, increasingly the cost of renting has just completely, uh, even here in Montreal that has like, has been historically way, way cheaper. It's part of why I stayed here was because there's rent control, right? Quebec has, has still has extensive rent control, the only place in North America. But even here in Montreal, the cost of rental has just absolutely uh, uh, skyrocketed. So so there's a huge, huge, huge issue around um, uh, housing affordability. Well, we own all kinds of public land, right? The Gardner Expressway in Toronto is centrally located publicly owned land. Here in Montreal, René Lévesque Street is centrally located public land. Let's take that public land, in the case of René Lévesque, the central artery in downtown Montreal, let's take it and return it to how it was in the 1950s. It was housing. It was shops. Let's build, you can build thousands and thousands of co-op units, uh, uh, public housing units, rental units uh, on this public land. Um, and so, so you would be melding dealing with the climate crisis, which is too, one element of it is too much use of the private automobile 
with overcoming the uh, housing crisis, which is, uh, you know, needs for more public housing, co-op housing, et cetera. Um, uh, so, so, you know, that, that's, I mean, a, a, you know, a small example, but if you start auditing cities, how much public land is devoted to parking, how much public land is devoted to uh, a form of transport that we need to move away from. And, and uh, it, I think should be basically turned into, uh, you can even make it revenue neutral from a government standpoint. You give, if you give, the, like, there's like 30 blocks of René Levesque Street, big wide boulevard, downtown Montreal. If you give 15 of those blocks to condo developers and let them build condos, you know, eight story or something like that, condo uh, towers on 15 blocks and, and demand they build, you know, in exchange for building uh, uh, eight stories of public housing on the other 15 blocks. Uh, so there's even ways of making revenue neutral. I'm not saying that's what I would want to do and ideally, but that is a, that would be a you know possibility if you're, if you're concerned about it being, revenue revenue neutral from a from a government perspective um so so there's these you know these kind of you know i think in this case you know creative proposal to to um to overcome the you know climate uh uh lessen the the climate uh uh, uh crisis uh, while simultaneously dealing with the um uh housing uh uh um, affordability but there's no real discussion uh, you know despite a re- wide recognition that that you know housing affordability is just out of control there's no real no real political movement saying even you know the ndp even at the sort of more left end which were you know historically they obviously ardent supporters of saying let's put you know uh, uh public money into uh into building public housing there's there's very limited here in quebec there's a bit more there's a bit more of a housing uh advocacy movement the Frappru, coalition um uh, that does demand the provincial government uh, put more money into public housing, but it's pretty, it's pretty, um, it's pretty weak uh, in terms of uh, those demands. But but it's obvious that that uh, that's the the most um, uh, important way or the best way from a medium term to deal with the housing crisis, which is just to build a lot more uh, public housing and co-op housing and, you know, co-op housing in Vancouver, there's still pockets of it in Vancouver. Well, while all the houses around are like 1.5 million, $2 million. There's, you know, pockets of my, my actual uh, aunt and uncle in, in Vancouver um, live at a uh, uh, co-op housing, uh, pretty, you know, pretty centrally located uh, com- around commercial drive in the SkyTrain and Broadway. And, uh, and it, it's, uh, you know, it's, they get to have stabilized costs um, and, um, and, uh, it's a way to, uh, um, you know, make much more affordable, uh, uh living than, than, uh, the open market. But to push back just a little bit on that, because if you drive, if you drive on the Gardner expressway right now, like you hop on your car, you get on the, on the Gardner, all you're going to see is condos. And like, I'm not saying like small condos, I'm talking about condos that are like 50, 50 plus stories. Now, the problem with that is, even with the environmental argument, is that these condos bring in, because you have the condos and you build the parking lot underneath, you build the parking lot, which is, it's not going to be 50 stories down, because now in order for you to get a parking spot here in Toronto, it's going to cost you $50,000 to buy one. Like, it's, it's getting ridiculous here. 
you're getting more traffic inside the inside the inner cities and you're getting more volume of people inside the cities and yet the prices as you said more um more product is out there so the prices should be going should be going less get a two bedroom two bedroom condo in downtown toronto it will cost you a million dollars without blinking an eye it'll cost you a million bucks and there are hundreds of thousands of apartments in, in downtown toronto apartment units hundreds of thousands and i'm like being very conservative with that number like we have one at young and uh young and bloor it's 120 stories all condos so it's yeah well yeah i i mean i was there's two parts that first of all i would never build housing with any parking I don't think there should be, I, I think we hit, especially when you're in central Toronto, that's the whole point. The point of, of building a lot of uh, public housing and co-op housing on, on where the gardener currently is, is precisely it's some of the best location in, in the city of Toronto where people should be able to get around without a private automobile. That's, that's, that's why you want to build it precisely there is because you don't want you want to gradually be eliminating the private automobile from all of central Toronto. That should be the, if I was going to run for mayor of Toronto, I would say I have put forward a 10 year plan to basically eliminate the, uh, the private automobile for the center of the city. Now. So, cause I, we, we need to do that for ecological reasons. I think there's also, it's just going to make for ultimately will make for a much nicer city. Um, it's healthier for people that, you know, you, you have less pollutants in the air, you have people get more exercise in the transport. And this is, this has been done. You know, if you go, if you go to Amsterdam, if you go to, you know, the, the proportion of people who use vehicles to get in the center of cities is minuscule. And most people get in by foot or by bike or by, by train. Um, now from the standpoint of, of, of the public housing element to it or the co-op housing. Now there are a number of cities in the world like uh, <clears throat> um, Vienna, Hong Kong, uh, where more than half the population is living in public or, or co-op housing. Right. Those those cities often do actually also have pretty high ho housing, like, you know, the buying and selling of housing is is the prices are quite high. Um, but you have most of the people who are, who are living in a different arrangement. They have public. Housing. So if, you, if, if we were to build 30,000, you know, just take a discussion, 30,000 units of public housing and co-op housing in the center of Toronto tomorrow or over the next you know five years, those 30 you could have you know, let's say two people per unit uh, on average, uh, you could have 60,000 people who are living in non-market costs. So they're paying, you know, and the way public housing works could, you know, vary. People pay depending, partly dependent on their income. So some people would be paying, you know, only if, if they're on welfare, they're only paying a couple hundred bucks a month. And some people are paying, you know, higher, higher rates. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's basically affordable for those 60,000 people. So it, it has nothing to do. You can have the whole other capitalist housing market taking place, you know, around that, that, that doesn't impact those people's, you know, the affordability for those people. And so, so that's the ultimate objective is to build up the, the, the public housing core, I think, ideally 
the ultimately co-op is probably better than in public, but 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 public and co-op housing, the build up the stock of housing. So you have a higher and higher proportion of those living in not just in Toronto, but also in Hamilton and Vancouver and everywhere else in the greater Toronto area and elsewhere in the country that are that are that are and, and what happened was that we stopped building essentially stopped building public and co-op housing for we for multiple decades we stopped doing it we were building lots of it in the, in the 60s and 70s and we stopped building that and so um a smaller and smaller proportion of of the population is 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 living um with you know in in, in that more affordable kind of uh um uh situation so so th that's what i i see is what we you know that's the ultimate way to overcome uh, or a big part of overcoming this, the insane, you know, affordability question around, uh, around housing. Well, I think the, there's a lot that we can unpack there. So there's a lot that we can unpack, um, changing gears just a little bit, just to just cut it off, uh, just to, um, close it off. What, what are your thoughts on BC on, on bill C11? Cause I know that's a big talking point here in Canada. Yeah, I haven't I haven't followed it that closely. It gets um, it gets different uh, uh, play in uh, in Quebec than it does in um, uh, English Canada. Uh, it's sort of there's more sort of sympathy um, uh, for it in Quebec. Um, I, I I I my sense, and like I said, I haven't I haven't followed uh, that closely. My sense is that um, the the element about sort of trying to um, suppress discussion is, 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 you know, politically suppressed discussion is, is exaggerated and the, the, in some of the criticism and the element about, um, about, uh, you know, call it, let's, um, uh, you know, cultural, cultural nationalist concerns is is uh is more is more uh, legitimate than some people uh uh frame so i don't i don't see any problem with with um with uh putting demanding uh that that um uh you know social media uh, uh firms uh have more canadian content i i don't see that as i, I don't i don't care that much one way or another in terms of some of the you know canadian content kind of stuff but but i don't i'm not like opposed to the idea of the government uh, uh forcing that what what's what's your uh what's your feeling on c11 um i i don't want the government in my controlling what i say it's not the government's i put the government there i put the politician to represent me in parliament, not to control me. If I think, if I disagree with what the, with what the politician says, I should have the right to say so because one, I put him there and two, I'm paying a salary. So they work for me. They represent me as a Canadian. So if I feel that they're going wrong, I should have the right and the obligation to tell them to tell them so. And with no with no repercussions. That's the basis of democracy. If you look at ancient Greek democracy, it it actually went to the point that when the with the when the elected official 
finished his or finished his term, the people had the right to vote to whether or not that official stayed in the country or we exiled him. So I know I understand this democracy is different. This is but it's you know, coming from a Greek background, I see all this stuff and it's like, am I being represented by my by my government, by the elected official? No. And I'm being gonna and I'm gonna be punished for it too, on top of it. That's not freedom. That's not freedom of speech. That's not democracy. That's not that's not why I put them there. And just just to be clear, I never voted for Trudeau. <laughs> I never voted for Trudeau. Um, but still, like even if I didn't if, even if I didn't vote for that politician, I should still have the right as a as a free country. Like we stand by Canada as a free country. Where's the freedom when my banks, when my, when my bank state, when my banks is being seized, I have no rights because I don't agree with your policies. That's not, that's not right. This is not, this is not a free country in that sense. You know, it's, it's, um, that that's where I stand with Bill C eleven. I, I think I think it should be completely removed right from scratch from thing and from from uh, from Parliament and never set foot in there again because it's hurtful. It's hurtful for Canadians to see to see that you know what I have to be careful now what I say because I can be punished and that's not that's not freedom. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously we don't we want less. Uh, we don't, you know, government getting involved in trying to determine what disinformation is, for instance, is something that's a, a negative. I definitely support the idea of uh, being able to vote to exile uh, exile uh, <laughs> Canadian uh, prime ministers. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. Uh, pass you back to Grace. And um, in addition to um, John's concerns and conversation of previously, there's a question from the audience asking, how can the U.S. and other countries afford to pay for all the illegal people entering the, the country? So, and, you know, I'm sure Canada has your own problem. And when their own countries cannot care for them. So what's your insights on immigration policies? Oh, I think that immigration, I mean, Canada has benefits economically from immigration as a macro. Uh, it's, you know, part of why Canada keeps, uh, has been, you know, sort of fairly successful economically is because of, because uh, of bringing people in from elsewhere. I mean, most obviously by these, you know, universities, international university students that pay these high tuitions and we get them in Canada when they're, you know, 20 four 25 there have you know advanced degrees and we haven't paid for them you know all the education growing up and then we get them in their you know in the canadian economy at their prime uh uh 
productive kind of years. I mean, this, that's a huge gain for, for Canada economically. Obviously, you know, there are instances where there are, you know, grandparents who come in who, you know, aren't, you know, aren't in that sort of situation. But from, from a macro level, uh, immigration has been a, a real boon to Canada economically. I don't think that's where, if you want to talk about, you know, uh, well, specifically around the U.S., you want to talk about, you know, economic drain. Uh, immigration is not the issue. Uh, the issue of the American military getting a trillion dollars a year in public funds, uh, uh, you know, that's something that I think that um, most most Americans, and, and in Canada's case, it's you know, a much smaller amount of money, but still a quite a massive amount. Um, you know, that's what we, we need to turn to, 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 to fund, uh, to fund the, uh, you know, the housing instead of, bu- instead of buying new, uh, new naval vessels, uh, let's, let's, uh, let's build tens of thousands of units of, 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 uh, of co-op and public housing. So, so we, people can live in uh, in Toronto and Vancouver and not have to pay uh, you know insane amounts of rent or 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 housing costs um but yeah in terms of the immigration issue I, I don't think from an economic I don't I think the argument's pretty strong in favor of um, of uh, bringing in you know large numbers so how about the um, uneducated immigrants Because you're talking yeah, about... I mean, we, it, would get, it gets, gets into all kinds of different... You know, it would... It would from, if strictly, it would dropping like the other, you know, other moral and, and, and consider just sticking to a, a narrow economic. I'm not, I'm not like, an, you know, an expert on this, but let's say, uh, you know, I don't know, a, a 30-year-old uh, Haitian, uh, uh, you know, refugee coming over from, you know, through the rocks and border crossing there. Uh, I mean, they would generally, that would generally be a boon. They would generally do a sort of, uh, you know, a, a low skilled, uh, job. I don't know. Maybe they work at like McDonald's and, and, uh, um, there's, there's you know, relative need for, for, uh, uh, for for the for more people doing those jobs, so I don't I don't I don't see that being an economic drain. If people don't want immigrants to come in because they don't like how immigrants are changing Canada and that kind of stuff, I think make the argument on that front. I don't agree with that argument. I I generally believe we move towards more open borders, um, but but I don't think from a from a narrow economic. Now, obviously, there are examples that you know. It's not saying that each each immigrant coming in would have a different impact economically and some are you could call a cost and i think predominantly would be a benefit economically but some are a cost obviously uh i mean like if you wanted to craft a really a really sort of um uh, you know particularly nasty uh, immigrant immigration policy to to uh, avoid those costs i think that's actually part of what canada does uh in its immigration policy is try to deter the more the more uh, costly, if you want to call it that, um, uh, uh, people from coming in, uh, but um, and and prioritizes benefits to to the more uh, you know economically beneficial. Uh, you know, I think there's there's some you know there's there's room to have that debate, I guess. Um, but uh, but yeah, I don't think as a macro level, I, I think it's pretty hard to argue that the that the immigration policy is is you know bad um, economically. 
it can, it can, it can, it can, in some instances, put downward pressure on wages. I think we shouldn't, we shouldn't be, um, we shouldn't be, you know, we should admit that in some instances, I think there is some, there, there are, you know, issues where, where, um, that can, you know, for some people, uh, for some working class people, um, that, that can have some, um, some, you know, sort of negative, uh, effects. Um, but, uh, yeah. And of course, the last follow-up from that question is what about taking care of our own people first? Well, I, I don't think I don't think the people who are running the show uh, are really interested in taking care of like our own people. And, and I don't think that I don't I think the immigration issue is kind of a side to that, right? Like the the people who are running the show care about primary first of all they care about staying in power okay so the politicians they want to stay in power they but but they understand that the power structure is such that the way to stay in power is to be aligned with the corporations be aligned with the the uh you know the the, the think tanks the 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 elites uh the media elites the you know so so they craft policies that basically align with those interests and so they're not the they're not they're not they're not trying to like they're not worried their principal concern is not the you know the 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 average you know working class person who's making i don't know 22 bucks an hour uh that's not their like they they they're concerned about that person to the extent that that person is organized is is you know has has some power within the media uh, has some ability to exert their voice so they I'm not, I'm not saying they're not concerned about them at all but that's their you know very much their secondary concern versus those who who uh, you know who own the the media outlets who 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 have a whole bunch of lobbyists working for them. Um, so, so, so yeah. I, and, and that goes into the whole, like some of the whole foreign policy uh, discussion, right? Like I don't, I, I, I don't think that like there's, there's a criticism of Canadian foreign policy, U S foreign policy that's structured around, you know, let's look after our own. Okay. I don't actually, I don't, I don't really share that. I, I do think we need to look after the most vulnerable and, and, you know, working class, Canadians, I think we we do need to look after them much more than we 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 are right now. But I don't think my my principal con- criticism of of Canadian or U.S. foreign policy is not structured around that. I don't. I I'm I'm I've I've written about this. I like we in Canada we have something called the uh, equaliz- equalization payments. Okay, which basically means that that we try to have some degree of like lessening of inequality within the country. So the wealthier provinces. Uh, essentially, send money to the poorer provinces to to you know lessen inequality. I personally don't have a problem with that being a do- variation of that being adopted globally, right? So we try. We have the wealthier countries uh, uh, transfer funds to the less wealthy countries. Now, there's all kinds of a problem. Uh, politically problematic ways of how to, you know the, the actual mechanics of that are, are difficult. I don't I don't I don't deny that. But as a, as a general kind of principle, that we try to you know allocate resources uh, 
you know, between the wealthiest and so and so, and you know, maybe for 100 years that place is a, a wealthier place, and then the next hundred years it's that other countries of the wealthy place, and that's what happened internally within Canada, right? Transfer payments, what which provinces have sent money to other provinces shifted over the years. Um, so so I, I think that the idea of having that globally could be actually really Well, thank you very much. And uh, sorry we couldn't accommodate the rest of the questions and comments. And Eves, I'm sure you feel bad that you're just on and off, but it's okay. We have our own challenge too, just as you see that we always have that blinking thing. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's the content. So Eves, yeah you want to continue what you're saying and tell what's your last thoughts that you want to share and how people can connect with you and you're frozen yeah so <laughs> i guess just to finish off i i apologize i apologize i really don't know what my wi-fi is usually it's always good i don't know what's going on but um so so uh yeah, I, I think the models of, of trying to lessen inequality, I just don't think that that's what the foreign policies are doing. I don't think I don't think Canadian foreign policy, when we are giving aid to Ukraine, that's not what we're actually doing. What we're actually doing is trying to fight a proxy war with Russia. Right. So I don't in principle, I don't oppose the idea of giving aid to Ukraine. What I I oppose the idea of NATO expansion and fighting proxy wars. And same, similar when we talk about giving aid to Haiti, that's not actually what we're doing. What we're actually doing is we're trying to uh, 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 entrench a, 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 uh, an, in, 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 an equal system within Haiti as uh, Haiti under the boot of the US empire. So anyway, so, the, so, the, so these questions, that's not how I uh, frame my, um, my criticism of, of of Canadian foreign policy or whatnot, but, but just to, yeah, I guess to conclude or to, you know, to, to, well, to connect in with me, it's, you know, it's pretty straightforward. You can check out my website, evingler.com. You can sign up for whenever I publish an article, I send it, sends an email. You can do that. I do, I do something called the Canadian foreign policy hour, which is a weekly update on, uh, on Canadian foreign policy. Um, you can get on the list for that. And, and I send an email, each week when each Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, uh, when I give a sort of discussion, I still have some guests and just discussion came foreign policy. You get tied in with that. Obviously, you know, my books, um, I guess my main message to people would be is, is that um, get organized, right? And <laughs> get organized. If you want, if you want to change the world, uh, we can do it. It's not easy. Uh, when you're challenging power, it's never easy. Uh, but it's doable. And there's many, many examples of history of, you know, a lot of what the good things we have, it's because people previously have organized. Um, uh, so do that and, um, and uh, you know, be engaged and be engaged in as many ways as, uh, as possible from voting to joining a, I don't know, a political party to joining a, an activist group to, you know, engaged with uh, alternative media, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the Foreign Policy Institute, that's what you just mentioned, right? The Canadian Foreign Policy Institute? No, no I just mentioned... I, no, there's... That, just a small piece of that. That's the Canadian Foreign Policy Institute. That The, the CFPI has an email list and does lots of different events, and people can get on that email list, and the website for that group is info... Uh, uh, or sorry, foreignpolicy.ca, uh, and the email is info 
info at foreignpolicy.ca. Um, and but what I'm talking about is the Canadian Foreign Policy Hour, which is just a weekly uh, webinar kind of session I do uh, that deals with developments in Canadian foreign policy. You can find that info on that and my website, evingler.com. Okay. Thank you very much. And then thank you to everyone. And yes, please remember to share, like, subscribe, donate to the links. We're, we try to say that again and again. We're being diligent to say because we get shy sometimes, okay? But we all know we have some sub maintenance costs. So thank you and have a good day. Have a good evening and take care, everyone. And always, as uh, Eve said, always be a part, be engaged. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, everyone.